Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys again. If we haven't met, my name is Dawson, and I work at City Light Church in Amarillo with JR Favela. Um, and I got to be back with you guys in June. It's my wife, Melissa, and we have an 18-month-old named Jane. You may hear her screaming later. Who's to say? Uh, so uh, you guys have partnered with us, as Matt was saying, to plant City Light. And in God's grace, we just celebrated a year of, as a church. So thank you for just praying for us and uh, supporting us. And just a couple of ways to update you, um, ways that you can continue to be praying. First, um, we are really aiming to love our neighborhood well. We're planted in a part of Amarillo that does not have a lot of gospel-centered um, Bible-preaching churches, and we're trying to let our neighborhood know we love you. We had um, a neighborhood outreach back at the end of July, and then this week, actually, we're going to be partnering with the elementary school down the street to host a, or we're not hosting, the elementary school is hosting a tailgate, and we're going to be there trying to minister to students and families, and so pray for that. Pray for gospel conversations. Pray that the Oakdale neighborhood of Amarillo would know that a church loves them and that ultimately God loves them. And then also, um, we are in a part of Amarillo where there is a lot of Spanish speakers and um, a lot of families too. And so we're trying to build up our Spanish ministry and our children's ministry. And so those things, if, uh, if you think of it, you could be praying for those as well. So that's, um, yeah, so pray for those things. Today, we are going to be looking at Psalm 129, Psalm 129. So when you get there, could you just please stand in the honor of reading God's word? Um, we stand to, to honor God and his word and the place that it has over us, the authority that it has over us. So Psalm 129, we've been working our way through the Psalms of Ascent a special section in the book of Psalms. So here's Psalm 129, a song of ascent. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his, his arm. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us, for our instruction and for our good, and so that we may know you more. Please make yourself clear to us in this time. We want to know you and your son and be empowered by your spirit to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. Please help us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can take a seat. Well, um, I, I have a confession to make to you. Uh, one of the, the main areas that my patience has been tested, challenged uh, since becoming an adult is in the kitchen. 
I don't know if any of you can relate. Uh, if you've ever cooked or baked something with several steps, you know that attention to detail, patience, getting the conditions just right so the dish turns out how you want, it's all very important. And I will do all of that work sometimes, at least I think, and I will completely burn something, overcook something, or I'll just look at the kitchen afterwards and think that was way too much work. Um, Melissa several times has been like, you're doing this wrong and maybe you should do this. And it's just all very confusing to me. And so let's be honest, most things in life take patience, take practice, take uh, just attention to detail, hard work. Um, when the obstacles of the kitchen come my way, I would just rather give up. Um, I would rather take off the apron and go to Chick-fil-A. So uh, I, don't, I don't know what, what it is for you, if you can relate with something like that in your life, uh, when so, if something does not come naturally to you, what is something in your life that when you experience it, you feel defeated, maybe it's a particular sports team, um, or when I play sports, I walk away feeling defeated most times. Um, or as I'm thinking about the learning curve that it, it took to become a husband and a father, there are things in life that do just not come easily to us, right? So I'm bringing this up because I think we all intuitively know that. There are things in our life that go against the grain of our natural inclinations, um, that are hard, obstacles, affliction, and suffering without us, without us having to even ask for it. And today, our text, Psalm 129, deals with that very idea. So Eugene Peterson says that in one word, this psalm is about perseverance. Perseverance. Being able to press on, move forward, even when things are hard stick to itiveness. And that's a word, by the way. I looked it up in the dictionary. It's, it's there. Stick to itiveness. We all have to develop stick to itiveness to be able to flourish in life. It's essential. Perseverance. And this psalm is not typically one of those psalms that you hang above your bed or put on a coffee mug or flip to in times of encouragement. But we still need this psalm. We still need to hear what God is saying in this psalm. Why? Because suffering, affliction, opposition, without us having to ask for it, is going to come our way. And no, we are not ancient Israel. We're not traveling to the temple singing this song, but suffering still hits us all. And it's important to say that you can live foolishly and you can sin and you can bring suffering upon yourself. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what I think this psalm is talking about. What I'm talking about is suffering, affliction, opposition that comes from external forces, from things outside of our control. What I'm saying is that we live in a world fractured by sin and therefore experience the presence of evil and wickedness. We all know this to be true. And I'm not talking about the hardship that I face because I don't know how to bake a cake. But I'm talking about when life brings deep despair, 
and discouragement. And you feel disappointed because something didn't work out the way that you experienced. Or um, the natural evil that we experience in this world through something like a cancer diagnosis. Or when someone wounds you by sinning against you. Or when we experience varying degrees of persecution in this life. Some ways in America, but people all over the world that are being killed because they are claiming the name of Christ. There is suffering in this world. We, just, we know that to be true. And so, here's the question that I want you to be considering as we walk through this text. Here's how this psalm should be confronting us today. How do you respond to the unavoidable, not asked for suffering and affliction that may come your way or in the lives of others? What's your response? How are you doing? If we're to take a pulse on your perseverance meter, what would you, uh, what would come back? Um, are you, do, do you tend to avoid? Do you try to pretend that pain is not real and therefore just distract yourself or distance yourself from the pain of others? Or are you on the opposite end of the spectrum where you try and conquer evil and suffering in your life by just really clenching your fists and trying to take things into your own hands? Or you just may be coming in here today feeling overwhelmed, not sure how you're gonna uh, put the next step in front of the other. How are you doing with perseverance, with your stick to in this life? No matter where you are today, I think this psalm gives us some tools for perseverance, some path forward perseverance for the journey. It's, it's important to remember why the Psalms of Ascent were written. As I was coming to this text, I have to ask myself, why would they sing this psalm? Why would this be in the songbook of the people of Israel as they're journeying towards the temple? And it's because they experienced affliction and they experienced suffering in their life and they needed to sing something that would ground them and not let suffering tear them apart on the journey. So let's see what the people of God are singing to help them preserve. Perseverance for the journey. First, we'll look at uh, remembering God's faithfulness. And secondly, we'll look at crying out for God's deliverance. So first, perseverance for the journey. Remember God's faithfulness. Let's look back at verses one through four together. One through four. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So first, if we're going to have perseverance in suffering, if we're not going to be tossed back and forth, we're going to have to remember God's faithfulness. And the group of Israelites that are singing this song, they're coming together to sing two, two things simultaneously. Suffering is real, yet, we have, yet, yet it has not overcome us, God's faithfulness. 
And those, there's a temptation to believe that those things are at odds sometimes, right? If the presence of suffering in my life, that means that God can't be faithful. God's faithful, I'm not gonna have suffering. But that's not what this Psalm is saying. Let's look at it. First, they say, greatly we have been afflicted from our youth. It's kind of like the refrain of this Psalm. Greatly we have been afflicted from our youth. And that word afflicted in Hebrew literally means to bind, to show hostility towards, So the idea is they've been cornered, they've been enclosed, they've been trapped by the wickedness around them. And by our youth, they're saying from as long as we can remember as a people, maybe they're thinking way back to to Egypt in the book of Exodus when they were slaves. From the very beginning of the creation of God's people, they have been afflicted. They've experienced suffering. It's been a part of the reality. They felt so oppressed that in verse three, the psalmist uses really dramatic imagery. He compares their bodies to the very fields that their enemies have plowed. Like, think about that. If you're saying that your body has been plowed like a field, then then you feel like you have endured repeated, exhausting suffering. And, and we have to acknowledge, let's just stop here and say, this is a place where the Bible is brutally honest with us. The Bible doesn't try and cover up suffering or things that are hard. It doesn't try and minimize hardship or human experience. And so if you have ever felt deeply afflicted, in pain, you are in good company. The Bible speaks to that. But, That is not where the psalmist is laying his emphasis. Affliction does not get the final word. So what does verse two say? Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Although their felt experience is suffering and opposition, they're still here. There is hope infused in the acknowledgement of suffering. And why is that? Verse four, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, to be righteous is to act with moral perfection, Um, rightness. The NET translates it, the Lord is just. Or Eugene uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse four as, then God ripped the harnesses of the evil plowmen to shreds. So the people have endured great suffering from these evil plowmen, but God saw their affliction and he was not going to stand for it. Suffering in opposition has been a reality for God's people, but they're still standing because they remember God's faithfulness. Maybe they're thinking back to the Exodus. When he heard their cries, raised up Moses and set them free, God sees his people's suffering and he acts with justice. That's what they know to be true about God based on their history. So do you see what's happening here? For, to, to, uh, to keep from opposition and suffering from tearing them apart, they acknowledge the reality of suffering, but then they give it context. They reflect on the reality of God's character in, and his faithfulness in the midst of affliction. They see their suffering in light of who God is is and has been. And as I was thinking about it, the last time I was here with you when I was preaching um, Galatians 4, the whole first half of the passage was about looking back and remembering. 
the call to remember is all over the Bible. Why? Because we're really forgetful people. Uh, do you know what object permanence is? Maybe. Uh, it's the concept that when an object goes out of view, you know that thing still exists. So um, when you're born, that's something you have to develop. So when our daughter Jane was littler, if we would set her down and leave the room, she thinks we don't exist anymore. And so she starts screaming and she's like, where'd they go? And what's funny is we do the same thing with God, right? We might be great praising God and then suffering comes our way and we start to think, God, where'd you go? You don't exist anymore. We start to lose our, our permanence of where God is and who he is. What we start to do with our suffering is we start to isolate it. And we start to think, man, this is all there is, isn't there? This is so overwhelming. I can't see anything else without actually giving our suffering context for what has come before it. The truth is the presence of suffering does not mean that God has left the room. God's character and his nature are always the same. And that's why it's vital for us in suffering, if we're going to have perseverance, to constantly remember, rehearse, remind ourselves, remind the people sitting to your left and your right that God is still the same. He's still a God that delivers us because we're forgetful people. And so the, the question for, for you and for me is, okay, well, what do we look back and remember? What are the people looking back to remember? What drives our perseverance? Well, we can look back at the one major event in history that the Psalms of Ascent, did, the author did not have, the cross and the resurrection, right? The writers of the Bible see Jesus' death. This is why we're singing about it in, these, in the songs earlier. Jesus' death and resurrection as the hinge point of all human history. At the cross, Jesus took the wickedness of humanity upon himself and triumphed over it through the resurrection. And when we trust Christ, his victory becomes our victory. To look back at the work of Jesus is to say what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about what he's saying here. Think about what Paul is saying here. The God of the universe gave up his own son for you and for me so that you might have right relationship with him. So, in the midst of all of our pain, all of our hurt, why would he not give you everything that you need? How will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give you all things? That may not be the thing that you want or the thing you think you need, but if God knows you need Jesus, he will graciously give you all things. So if you're not a Christian here today, what are you waiting for? Like what kind of thing are you trying to build your life around? God gave up his son for you. Would you trust him? And if you are a Christian today, God is for you. 
in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, remember God's faithfulness. Would you look back and would you meditate on these verses? Would you remember this in light of your suffering? So Liberty, may we along with the psalmist say, yet they have not prevailed. Suffering has not prevailed. So first, we remember God's faithfulness if we're gonna have perseverance. And secondly, we cry out for God's deliverance. Um, So the other aspect of this psalm is forward-looking. Verse four is our hinge verse, right? If the Lord is righteous, he's acted this way in the past and he's gonna keep acting that way in the future. So that can motivate this prayer, verses five through eight. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up and which uh, the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The end. (laughs) To our ears, that kind of sounds like a weird prayer, right? Uh, Kind of an abrupt ending. Why would they pray for the uh, cursing, the end of their enemies? It's not things we're taught to pray in Sunday school. And, but what we're seeing is that although God has delivered his people in the past, the presence of wickedness has not been completely eliminated. There is still uh, suffering and people who oppose the people of God in the lives of the psalmist. There's an acknowledgement that There's people that dislike God and his ways that actually hate him. That's why he says to those, it's those who hate Zion. Zion in in the Bible is an image used for God's city where God reigns. And to hate Zion is to say, I hate you, God. It's people, um, they're setting themselves up against God uh, by their actions, their way of life. And because the people that believe that God is righteous that he's cut the cords of the wicked in the past, this gives, him, this gives him confidence that he's going to do it again. That God will act in accordance with his character. He will not let wickedness reign. Their perseverance is informed by this prayer for deliverance. So uh, what are they trying to say in the prayer? Now, the, the prayer here is very culturally informed. Uh, a commentator I read, Alan Ross, was really helpful here. Uh, that They're using images that are appropriate for their culture to, to say, we do not want wickedness to reign. In general, it's a cry for God to put an end to evil and suffering. It's not vengeful cursing of their enemies saying, hey, I hope you get what you deserve. No, it's God, would you please put an end to wickedness? Look back, verse five, no success in wicked pursuits. He's saying, turn backward, may you be put to shame. It's, this is military terminology that carries the idea that the wicked would be utterly turned around in their efforts for wickedness. Verses six and seven, no value or return on wickedness. In the ancient Near East, people would uh, put mud on the tops of their houses, their flat roofs, and grass would grow up on top, and then the sun would scorch it when the rains wouldn't come, and the grass would just wither away. And they're saying, would the wicked people around us, would that be them? Would there be no value, no return, so that when the harvester comes to harvest, that he would find no return in what the wicked are pursuing? 
And then lastly, verse eight, no blessing. In the ancient Near East, if you look at the book of Ruth, this is prevalent. Uh, Boaz at the gates of the city, he's giving blessing to the people who walk by. That would be common in their day. And so the psalmist is saying, may that not happen for people who are wicked. Don't bless them. Give them words of condemnation, of judgment, because they've turned against God. So again, this is not a vengeful curse. This is a cry for deliverance. God, do something about the injustice we see. May the wicked no longer prosper in our midst. So do you see what's going on? Perseverance on the journey looks like crying out to God in the midst of our suffering. Placing the evil we see in the hands of God. God's acted faithfully in the past, producing a confidence to cry to him in the present. In other words, this prayer is an expression of hope, a radical belief that God will put an end to suffering. As we see the Israelites crying out to God for deliverance, here's here's what I'm reminded of. When we experience uh, suffering in the world, our prayers, or lack thereof, says a lot about what we believe about God, and where we're placing our ultimate hope, right? Like around um, uh, this time of year, like people are really hopeful that the Dallas Cowboys and um, are gonna do something, right? And they're talking about it. And I don't know what they're basing that on because they have no confidence in the past necessarily to hope that they're gonna continue. I'm sorry, I... I didn't mean to offend you if I did. But, but we have confidence in God in the past to say, God, would you work in the future? And if we were to lift the hood on your response to suffering, what would it say about where you're placing your ultimate hope? Um, in yourself? in trying to make everything and everyone okay, in your friends or family, trying to uh, have them shoulder the pain that you feel, in our government to enact just and right policies to put an end to evil. This is our natural human tendency, right? To look for a resolution to the evil that we see. And you and I look to others to resolve the pain and evil that we see. And and when we do that, we're believing one or two lies, right? Or both. That one, God does not care, or God is not powerful enough to actually put an end to evil and suffering. But the truth is, if we place our hope in anything but God, if we cry out to anything but God, then we will deflate, burn out, become bitter, because that's not a weight that we were meant to carry. So yes, God partners with us to put an end to wickedness. We should be about um, putting an end to evil in the world, sharing the gospel, um, working to see uh, good things happen in the world, but final resolution belongs to God. 
He has acted with justice in the cross and he will act with justice in the future. Crying out to God in the midst of this world is what will sustain us, is what will help us persevere. Because this prayer, praying like this says, God cares and he's able to do something about it. Um, there's this song, I'm, gonna, I'm, about, I'm about to sing for you. Uh, there's a song written by an Australian man named Colin Buchanan. He, he's, he sings songs for children. But he has a song, and I love it, and it's called Stop What You're Doing and Pray to Jesus. And so I think here it goes. Stop what you're doing and pray to Jesus. Stop what you're doing and pray to Jesus. Stop what you're doing and pray to Jesus. Mighty, mighty Jesus. <laughs> and then he goes, big, big, good, good, mighty, mighty Jesus. Big, big, good, good, mighty, mighty Jesus. Big, big, good, good, mighty, mighty Jesus. Mighty, mighty Jesus. Oh, wow. So... Do you believe that? Um, is that a posture of your life to stump what you're doing and pray to Jesus when suffering comes your way? The application for us here is to do what the psalmist does and to uh, pray, to posture ourselves to pray to God. Uh, and Jesus actually models this for us, right? In the Lord's Prayer, the one, the, one of the most famous prayers gets at this whole idea that God would put an end to evil and suffering. Have you ever thought about it this way? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just make God your name be honored above all things. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What's, he's basically saying this, like there are those who hate Zion, like the psalmist is saying. If, if the application is God, may your name be honored, may your kingdom come, then the implication is that um, uh, there are people that are not doing that and that we need to fight for that. We need to pray for that. We need to ask that God's name would be honored. Or as he continues, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, wickedness is a real and present force. God, please help us. Keep us from that. Deliver us from evil. This is a theme throughout the Bible. If you don't know where to start, start with the Lord's Prayer. Or if you want something just very, very simple, the second to last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. When we pray for that, when we're saying, come Lord Jesus, what our heart is crying out is, Jesus, come back and reign and make all things new. Put an end to evil and suffering. In a world that does not make sense, the pathway to perseverance is to stop what you're doing and cry out to Jesus. So um, as we're closing here, let, let's just try and think about where we've been and land the plane. So this psalm, Psalm 129, is modeling for us what perseverance could look like in our lives. We all know we need to develop perseverance if we're going to um, be a long-term Cowboys fan and if we're going to be a Christian. We need perseverance. This psalm encourages us to look back ultimately at the cross and resurrection and then look forward to the day when God's ultimate justice will reign. In other words, I think this psalm exposes for us the main tension of the Christian life, right? We're a people who look backwards and forwards at the same time. 
kind of disorienting, but we have the hope of Jesus, but we also don't live in a place where the glory of Jesus reigns completely. The Christian life is one meant to be lived in this tension. The Psalms of Ascent are so applicable to us because they're all about people journeying towards worshiping God, journeying towards the temple. And you and I are journeying towards worshiping God in our ultimate home. So let's just kind of go back to that question we asked at the beginning. How are you doing today with perseverance? What's the perseverance meter saying on your life? What may God be drawing out in your soul today? If you're not a Christian here, what kind of framework are you building your life around? Like, how are you making sense of suffering in this life? If you are a Christian, what, what are you doing to persevere, to stand firm in this life? What is God drawing you to remember about himself or to cry out to him? I think Jesus, before he leaves to go to the cross, says something very succinctly to his disciples that I just want to leave you with today. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Liberty, our prayers for the end of evil and justice may not be answered in this life. And we're not called to live in this tension, of, uh, tension alone. Jesus Christ is the model. He has gone before us and he's overcome the world. Not in a everything will always be perfect kind of way, but in a I went to the cross and died kind of way. And then I was resurrected. And for those who trust in Jesus, that is your future. Resurrection. Jesus has overcome the world. Take heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that uh, speaks to us in, in ways that we cannot even see or understand. And Father, I pray that anything that I said that was unhelpful and distracting, please get rid of that from the minds of the people here today. That uh, your spirit would do exactly what it wants to do in the lives of the congregation here before me, God. Would you use your word by your spirit to do only what you can do? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.